Hello, and welcome to this September edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is making a return visit to the Podularity studio. I last interviewed philosopher Julian Bugini back in March in Podcast 8, when we talked about every town, his investigation of the English folk philosophy. He's been remarkably productive of late, publishing not one, but two books since our last interview. You can hear our discussion of Complaint, his defence of the noble art of complaining, in a couple of weeks' time. Today's podcast focuses on The Duck That Won the Lottery and 99 Other Bad Arguments, a sort of sequel to Julian's previous bestseller, The Pig That Wants to Be Eaten, and 99 Other Thought Experiments. This new book recently prompted the Financial Times to say, every society needs its guardian of good sense, but Genie is ours. I asked him first to distinguish duck from pig for me. Whereas the pig was about a series of thought experiments, the duck is about bad arguments and rhetoric. And the idea is that we're often presented with arguments which, if you look at them carefully, are actually very poor indeed. They they don't stand up if you scrutinise them. But we're persuaded by them. Really, the idea of the book is to try and get us into the habit of thinking about the kind of arguments we're presented with so that we're better able to distinguish between the good ones and the bad ones. So it's kind of refining your your mental radar for arguments that are trying to put something by you that's not actually true or consistent. Yeah, that's right. And I I think it's something which people are increasingly aware that they need to do. I mean, they've been, it is interesting, you know, when I had the idea for the book, you start writing it very enthusiastically. And then as publication came out, I did notice there have been a few other books coming around in the same general vicinity, basically about the worry people have that there's a lot of nonsense out there and they need to sort of like protect themselves against it. And I think there are various reasons for that. I mean, one thing is we're getting a lot of information now. And of course, all this information is coming in, but interpreting the information is still difficult and uh, you know the volume of information means we've got less time to think about what it means and also I think it's the case that you know in marketing and in politics people have got more sophisticated in their manipulation techniques so more than ever we need to know what they are so that we can sort of like you know spot the truth when we see it. I wondered if you thought the internet had increased the level of bad arguments, if you like, out there, because there is less mediation, there's less quality control than, say, if you're publishing something in a newspaper or having a speech that's that's seen by various advisors before it goes public. Well, the internet works in sort of different ways. On the one hand, it can be quite good because it means that you've got a lot of people able to scrutinise things straight away. So if someone makes a dodgy claim, then in theory, the internet is a good way of having a collective glance at it. In practice, however, what happens is that a lot of the sites people regularly go to are ones that already conform with their general worldview. And one of the biggest barriers to clear thinking is that we place too much weight on things we're already predisposed to believe. And we tend to be dismissive of things which which counter what we already believe. And in that respect, the internet isn't helping at all because what happens is you can go to a website where there are perhaps lots of very smart, intelligent people, but they're all basically reinforcing the same view. And, you know, the sheer effects of that on you tends to make you think there must be something in it, even if at the root there's a there's a dodgy argument. Or it just descends to collisions of incompatible worldviews. I'm thinking of some global warming sites where you get people who subscribe to a completely different view there's no anthropogenic global warming Mm. so it's it's simply a sort of 
statement and counter statement, but no real argumentation or, or engagement. Well, this way it goes to evidence as well, because if you think about how the way in which we use evidence, if you go to an anti-global warming uh, website, I'm sure they have you know tons and tons of evidence as to why this is a myth and why it doesn't actually exist or it's not man-made or whatever it might be. Now the point is of course that we tend to be overly impressed by the evidence that's in front of us and we don't take tend to take into account enough the need to balance all the available evidence. Now the thing about the internet is it means it's relatively easy for someone to marshal a huge volume of evidence but only on one side of the case and it's very difficult to resist that. I mean I, I think if, if I'm honest about it, I find it difficult too. If I'm reading something or I'm presented with something where I'm just being given evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence all on one side, you know, you find yourself thinking, well, maybe these people have got a point. But, you know, if you've got, if, if you could weigh evidence, if you had a ton of evidence on one side, if there's 99 tons on the other side, it's, it doesn't amount to anything. Now, I wanted to ask you, fr from your book, you, you're concerned with valid arguments and, if you like, the pursuit of truth. And I wondered if that, in a way, downplayed or ignored the role of language, which is not simply as a way of conveying truth, but has a rhetorical function or trying to trying to put your, put your case across in order to achieve something which may or may not depend on the, the truth value of the argument. The, so what I'm saying is, I suppose, if one urged public discourse of all, quote, bad arguments... What what kind of what kind of um, interaction would we be left with? How how could we then function without that use of exaggeration and mm. rhetoric? Uh, that that is there's you know part of the target I suppose of the book. Well, I absolutely agree with the fundamental point. I mean, first of all, I should say that it's not just about bad logic. I mean, it's also about psychological manipulation or the psychological reasons why we're persuaded for things. And there's also a fair bit as well about you know just use of language and how using language differently can be more persuasive or not. But you're right that it's not a realistic or even desirable goal to purge, you know, all discourse of any kind of rhetorical flourish. For one thing, you know, life would be much duller without it. If you think about a lot of the great quotations in history, you know, they've been things which if you examine them too closely, they may not quite add up, but uh, we know what they mean. So one mustn't be puritanical about it and think that people should only say that which is literally true. But in a sense, in a way, what you're suggesting, if that was to be used as an argument against me, it'd be an example of a kind of a, a bad argument of what we might call this a straw man argument. You know, the argument that because someone is saying there is too much of a certain kind of thing, in this sense, bad arguments, that um, therefore I'm arguing something much more extreme, which is that we must only ever talk in a purely rational way. That's just not the position I would advocate. Having said that, I don't think we're at much risk from that, you know. I mean, you know, the danger of us all resorting to only rational, logically coherent arguments seems to be very, very remote indeed. And the much greater danger is to succumb to nonsense in the interim. If, if there's a danger of credulousness at one extreme, and if we say that, you know, pure reason is, is probably an un unachievable goal, presumably there's there's a countervailing risk of cynicism, of mm. seeing every argument as potentially bad yeah. and and rejecting it on, on those grounds. No, I absolutely agree. And this is a, uh, something I find very dismaying about a lot of people who've had a training in philosophy, which is they get overconfident in their ability to spot bad arguments. And they just go around in the very superior way to sort of say, oh, well, that's rubbish, that's nonsense, and so forth. And, you know, and one of the 
forms of bad argument I talk about in the book I call something like lack of charity. Uh, it's important if you are to reason well, it is important that you don't, as it were, simply look at what other people are saying and always try and interpret it in the least charitable light, in the way that makes it seem most silly. I think we do have a duty when we're looking at what people are arguing to, as it were, deal with the strongest version of what they're saying and not the weakest one. So I agree with you the cynicism is a danger. I've tried to get around that in various ways. I mean, one thing I did, when I first had the idea for the book, I very much did see it more as being a bit more, you might say, crusading and all that kind of thing. But in this, the way I finally did it was I always tried to make it clear to people that if you're going to sort of use the tools I give you well, you have to be careful with them. And you always have to make sure that you're, you're not you know, doing violence to the position you're criticizing and that you know the tools for critical reasoning can be misused as well as used i mean you you use the example of the the cui bono argument you know who benefits mm. so asking and looking for reds under the beds or conspiracies or whatever and sometimes you say that can be a, an entirely legitimate and good question to ask yeah. but but it can be misapplied so it's it's not just spotting which species of argument it's knowing when it's being misapplied, this is what you're trying to, to get at. No, exactly. The one, you, the one you mentioned is a very good one, but it's the question you ask who benefits. So, you know, if someone's presenting an argument, so, you know, an oil company is arguing that uh, you know, the extraction of oil isn't a problem environmentally. Yes, it's very sensible to ask the question, well, who benefits from this belief? Oh, the person giving the argument. It's very, it's, but as a way of arousing suspicion. But of course, everyone benefits from from something being the case. You know, if you are an environmental campaigner, you benefit from the opposite being the case to the the oil company because you, you benefit not just perhaps materially because your job depends upon it, but you benefit in a sense that your your worldview and your values are reinforced and confirmed. So it's a it is a good question to ask simply to sort of check out what biases might be at work. But that doesn't settle the issue at all. Sometimes it is the case that the person presenting an argument stands to benefit from that argument, but nevertheless the argument is true. Let me ask you finally, if you ever let your own guard down and, and think, oh God, that bad argument just went went by me, I let, that, I, let, I let that goal in. Or indeed whether you ever look at your own work and think, no, there's a, there's a bad argument there that I've perpetrated and I've got to root that out. Well, I, I, I do. I, mean, you, you, I try and get in the habit of doing it all the time. So hopefully I don't think there have been any um, awful howlers in, in recent history <laughs> that I can um, remember. But I'm, I'm still very much open to persuasion in ways that I don't like. And in consumer things as well, I have I, I can remember examples where I've ended up buying something or, or shopping somewhere. And afterwards I've realised that the I made that choice because I was being manipulated in a way which gave me spurious grounds for thinking that this was, I don't know, more ethical or more healthy or something. And then only afterwards have I realised that I've basically been conned. So certainly when it comes to that kind of manipulation, it's unrealistic to expect we can totally immunise ourselves against it. But we can do our best to try and minimise the worst excesses anyway. Because you can have an argument which is well constructed, but based on premises which are false. So you can you can evaluate it you know, it, ha it holds together, but it's just. But the evidence, which is not always possible to test there and then, is um, you, later turns out to be untrue. That's right. I mean, there's a very simple distinction which you have to sort of get into your head if you're going to try and deal with good or bad arguments. Is that there's the cogency of the 
structure of the argument as it were so if you start from this position it follows that something else is true but then there's also the factual information going into it you know that's this logic is like a sausage machine you know um you get out exactly what you put in which means if you put in only good stuff only sort of truth you get good truth sausages out if you put in rubbish then you get you know uh, bangers which are likely to leave you with indigestion <laughs> i was talking to julian Bagini about the duck that won the lottery and 99 Other Bad Arguments, which is out now in hardback. If you've enjoyed this podcast, as I hope you have, you can subscribe to future episodes free of charge by typing Podularity in the search box on iTunes. I'm always pleased to hear feedback, except when I'm recording, of course, so do please leave comments on the Podularity website at podularity.com. And until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye.